Hello, and welcome to The Lancet Voice, The Lancet's bi-weekly podcast looking at the world of health. You can subscribe to The Lancet Voice wherever you usually get your podcasts. It's coming up to the end of January 2021, and I'm your host, Dr. Gavin Cleaver, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Dr. Jasmine Baganol. Member of Parliament Jeremy Hunt was the longest-serving health secretary in the history of British politics. After moving on to become Foreign Secretary, he's now the chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee, who have been hearing evidence over the last year from major actors in the COVID-19 pandemic. He joins us today to talk about the pandemic and health in Britain. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. We wanted to kind of kick off by just kind of looking back a little bit at the last year. So in 2017 in The Lancet, we published this uh, study that ranked the UK's NHS 30th out of 192 countries in terms of health systems. You know, but it's commonly thought of as a world leading health system. But we've had one of the highest, if not the highest, death rate from COVID-19. How do you explain this kind of incongruence, this difference? Well, I think uh, we are a very good health system, but um, the reason for the recognition we get internationally is we were the sixth country in the world to set up a universal health system. New Zealand was actually the first. And, but we were the first big famous country, if I can put it that way, without being disrespectful to our Kiwi cousins, to do it. And, um, and the British people really took that to heart as something very close to British values, the idea that it doesn't matter who you are, you can access decent health care. And we remained in survey after survey the most accessible healthcare system in the world, the healthcare system with the smallest gap between the care typically accessed by rich people and poor people. And we're, we're very proud of that. But what we haven't been as successful at doing is making sure that our quality is always the best in the world. And I really hope that can be our mission post-pandemic, that we say it's not just about access. We want the NHS to you know, be famous for the safety and quality of our care. And we do pretty well, but you know, we still have lower cancer survival rates than Germany and France, uh, double the number of baby deaths that Sweden has. And I think what the pandemic showed is some gaps in our public health architecture. Too early to understand why our death rate was so high. I'm sure the government has made some mistakes. On the other hand, it's got some things very right, like the vaccine rollout. But I think most people would say that the health inequalities that we have have left parts of the population more exposed to a pandemic. The 10 to 12 year gap in life expectancy between the richest 10% and the poorest 10%. That poorest 10% often has problems with obesity. Uh, They are overrepresented in uh, people from minority ethnic backgrounds. And so I think one of the things we will come out of this pandemic wanting to do is to have a much more sustained national focus on reducing health inequalities. What are some of the things you think we could do generally to kind of address this, uh, this, this quality gap, as you say? Some of them are within the policy bounds of the Department of Health and Social Care, and some of them are a whole government exercise, and some of them are about personal responsibility. So it's a, it's a big thing. But I um, was proud to make a lot of progress on a smoking policy when I was health secretary. Um, we introduced plain paper packaging, banned the display sale of cigarettes. And what I learned from that about public health is that these things take a very long time, but you can get momentum. I think the smoking work really started under Caroline Flint when she was public health minister and she 
uh, was responsible for the legislation banning smoking in inside public places, um, which was very controversial at the time, but had a very big impact. And so on something like obesity, you need to change norms. Uh, we need to deal with the fact that often the cheapest food can be the least healthy, you know, frozen pizza, tubs of um, cheap ice cream and so on. But people on low incomes might need it to, to fill themselves up. So you've got to think about income inequality as well and housing and all these other things. So um, it's definitely achievable. Other countries have got less of a gap in uh, life expectancy between rich and poor, but it's going to need sustained focus from the top over a generation to make the progress that we want to. Thanks, Jeremy. And you said there that these things take a long time. I mean, part of the reason that they take such a long time is sometimes they're politically quite polarising and people don't necessarily like the thought of, you know, a state that's intervening too much in people's lives. Do you think post-COVID-19 that that will that relationship or that slight, you know, libertarian view that there shouldn't be an impact in individuals' lives on what they eat and how they eat will, will change? I think it might do because, you know, we, we tried an uber libertarian approach in the early stage of the pandemic and we, we found that it simply doesn't work. In a pandemic, uh, you have to act faster than the virus and you just can't do that without clear, early, decisive government action. But I do think that there are also ways in which the libertarian agenda will progress positively in the years ahead. Um, changes in technology will mean very soon that uh, we will be able to access our entire health record on an app on our phones. And that will mean that people become people like me who aren't doctors or have any kind of medical or scientific background develop much more knowledge about the medicines and treatments that they're receiving, um, become much more expert patients. And that's something that doctors will welcome. And we will, we will need to take more responsibility for our healthcare if we're going to move to um, a model of care where we put as much emphasis on prevention as on cure. But I think the traditional hesitance of prime ministers to get involved in this because of the charge of um, wanting a nanny state will dissipate. And I think that we've seen that with Boris Johnson even during this pandemic where he um, has suddenly got religion on tackling obesity, which I think is extremely welcome because of his own experience. Of course. And I mean, that sort of technological progress, which obviously we'd all like to believe is the truth, but with it, obviously, it also comes huge problems with inequality in terms of the digital divide, education and you know, patients becoming, at least in my experience, patients becoming expert patients, it's it's very much a socioeconomic based on education level. So, I mean, how do you see that panning out? We, we definitely need to deal with the education divide. And that's not just because of health inequality. That's just something that we, it's a kind of half achieved revolution. I mean, when I grew up in the 1980s, I went to a, a public school and that was a period where middle class parents said, if you possibly can, send your children private because you can't trust state education. Now, I don't think middle class people would say that at all. If you've got a good state school, they, they're every bit as good as the best private schools. But we don't do as good a job as we need to for people who leave school and don't go on to university. And that's a, a big challenge. And um, I think when it comes to health, 
the challenge is going to be particularly when it comes to genomics, because if you can imagine a world in which, which is what I would like to see the NHS leading the world by you know, dec decoding the genome of, of every baby born on the NHS and that's sitting on your medical record. Um, what's going to happen quite soon is that rich people are going to get their genomes decoded. Uh, there's a whole new class of doctor that is emerging in America who are uh, genome understanders who, who, who specialise in helping people interpret their DNA. And... Um, and rich people are going to access those people to find out if they've got an enhanced risk of getting bowel cancer or breast cancer or whatever. And I think the NHS may well end up being one of the first healthcare systems that spreads the benefits of that amongst the whole of society in a way that it's just not possible to do in America. It's interesting in America now that doctors are beginning to worry ethically about that divide and about the fact that the benefits of all those extraordinary changes might not be spread equally. As a, as a former foreign secretary, of course, as well as a former health secretary, what's your take over the last year on the kind of differing countries' approaches to, to COVID and I guess the kind of lack of joined up international cooperation as well? Well, I make two observations. I mean, first of all, there is just a very clear geographical divide between East Asia and Europe and North America. Um, and East Asia got it right, um, mainly because they had direct experience of SARS and MERS. Whereas in North America and Europe, there was groupthink that the way you tackle a pandemic is, is really from the flu playbook. In fairness to Chris Whitty, uh, there wasn't that groupthink in the UK when it came to vaccines. And we set up the UK Vaccines Network in 2016 and funded Oxford to uh, work on a, a vaccine against MERS, which then became the foundation of the AstraZeneca, Oxford coronavirus vaccine. So, but we did have this group thing in terms of pandemic response, and we shouldn't have. And I was, you know, part of the establishment that had that group thing. So I have my share of responsibility as, as the health secretary at the time. But I think the bigger thing that worries me than that is that we, we're still not nearly as good as we should be in healthcare at learning from other countries. And it was very clear in January of last year that the best response to COVID was happening in Taiwan and Korea. Korea has not had more than nine deaths on any one day. And I think we should have been studying that a lot harder. And there was a kind of mentality, well, you know, China's communist, so that's a different society. Um, and uh, maybe not enough understanding of the fact that Taiwan and Korea are very lively democracies, and yet they found ways to deal with the pandemic that they they secured democratic consent for, um, and we could have learned a lot more, a lot more quickly. That's actually interesting. What, what is what's your take on the kind of securing um, democratic consent, as you say, in, in these countries versus, uh, I guess, what happened over here in the UK? Well, you know, the rather shameful thing for people like you and me who um, you know who support open societies and liberal democracies um, is that in the last year people in China have had far more freedom to move around their country than people in the UK and I think that there are things that Korea has done which would have been impossible to advocate a year ago such as uh, when they had a COVID case looking at just without permission looking at people's mobile phone records 
and credit card statements to see where they'd been and then doing the contact tracing on the basis of that, which people might now consider acceptable in an emergency situation given that they can see the number of lives you save by being able to use technology in that way is just so huge. Now, you obviously have to have parliamentary locks on, on those kind of intrusions into civil liberties. But I think you might get consent for things now that you wouldn't have dreamt of before for the simple reason that Korea has not had to have a national lockdown. And think of the intrusion of liberty that a national lockdown has meant for us in Britain, let alone the lives lost. So do you think, I guess, in that sense, that a coming pandemic would be dealt with quite differently from the beginning in the future in the UK? I do. I think we have learned to act much faster. Of course, the government was criticised a couple of weeks ago for not going into the third lockdown more quickly. But in truth, um, you know, the first day back after the Christmas holiday was the 4th of January. And on the 3rd of January, the Prime Minister had gone on television to say, no, no, the schools are going to open. And on the 4th of January, one day later, he changed his mind. So he did act very, very quickly. And I think we have definitely learned the need to act fast. A lot of what we've been talking about has has revolved around tech and, you know, different ways that you can manage these things. I mean, the NHS historically has a very bad sort of history with being able to implement big tech projects. And certainly, you know, that seems to be one of the major problems, again, in this pandemic, you know, test and trace and all of these other things. Why do you think that is? And how can the NHS start to improve on that front? Well, the NHS has very quietly been having a pretty big tech revolution over the last 10 years. And I say quietly because all anyone remembers about NHS tech is connecting for health and how things went wrong. But even back in that period of the 2000s under Tony Blair's government, even though connecting for health didn't work out, the GPs set up their own electronic health records, which have turned out to be some of the best in the world. And we been using those records as the basis of a, a record that can be shared across the entire health and care system. So in my time, we opened up A&E departments to GP records. When I arrived, I think there was only one A&E department in the country that could access GP records. Now they all can. Uh, we're gradually opening it to the whole of hospital care and it will be open to the whole of the social care system. Um, and we're, we've now launched an app which you know, you can book appointments with your GP, order repeat prescriptions, uh, talk about your data sharing preferences and access your summary care record. So I think there's been quite a big revolution. I think the NHS could turn out, curiously, to be a leader in patients' use of tech. Uh, where we are chronically behind is hospital technology systems, which are still absolutely creaking at the seams in, in too many places, although we do have some some good ones, but, but nothing like what you would get in an American hospital. And for those hospital systems, in terms of what the difficulties have been and how we might overcome them? Well, they've um, been squeezed of capital, something that I hope will, will start to change now, not least after the, um, the 20 billion settlement that I, I secured as part of my last... Uh, things as health secretary because until that point we were so short of cash that we were raiding the capital budgets and part of that is IT. I think when we do start to get these systems in place we need to learn from what happened in the US where they charged headlong into um, 
automating into the digitization of hospital records under Obama. And what they, what they found was that a lot of doctors were spending more time looking at screens than at their patients. And in fact, there's a famous advertisement for an emergency care doctor in Arizona where they put at the bottom of the ad, no electronic health records here. And this is a selling point for the hospital because doctors are getting so cross in the US about having to spend so much time inputting data. So I think the key lesson from the US is that when you move to electronic health records, you need to have electronic health systems that improve doctor productivity, not ones that slow them down in terms of uh, their time with patients. That's what I think the GP, that's why the GP, the GP records that we have here have been so successful because most GPs really do think they've helped GP productivity and that's why they've embraced them. So on investment, do you think that the years of austerity have hampered the NHS's ability to deal with COVID-19? I think that uh, they were very, very tough for the NHS. And I felt the NHS needed more capacity and more money when I was health secretary. I was part of the cabinet that introduced that austerity. And I think it was the right thing to do, because if we hadn't put the economy back on its feet, we wouldn't have been able to afford that 20 billion rise that Theresa May agreed in in 2018, which is about 1% of GDP. So it's a significant uplift. So, But I think we need more capacity. We need more doctors. We need more nurses. Has it had an impact for the pandemic? I think that's harder to to stand up because so far, and it is only so far, every patient that needs it has had an ICU bed and had a ventilator. And I think that you know, even countries which have more beds and more doctors per head than we have, like Italy, like New York, have had very big problems. Where I feel the austerity years hit hardest was actually the social care system. And I very much wanted to secure a 10-year settlement for the social care system alongside the NHS. I was not successful. I was told that would come next, and then I moved to the Foreign Office. I really hope in this post-pandemic year that we uh, settle that unfinished business and give the social care sector a 10-year plan, just as we've done for the NHS. Yeah, I mean, you say there that we that everybody has had a ventilator in a bed, and I think that's true, but it's hard to feel that that's not because of the incredible re- resilience and, and work of the actual NHS staff rather than the system itself, and that it is really under such huge pressure that it, it's the staff that are, are keeping things going. And surely on the inequalities front, it's hard to feel that austerity didn't add to, add, add to that burden at some point. Well, possibly. I, I'm not trying to dispute that but you have to look at these things in in the context that they were in and we had a um a financial meltdown which was the biggest since the second world war and if we hadn't addressed that if you look at you know what happened in countries like greece and portugal uh, they actually had to make real cuts in their health budgets which we never had to do here but not everyone will agree with this but i do think that we had to take difficult decisions in order to put ourselves in a position where we we were able to invest sustainably in our public services for the long term. But I wouldn't pretend at all it wasn't incredibly painful. And indeed, it was painful in the NHS, even though it didn't have any actual real terms cuts, because demand was increasing faster than the budget. And so we, we had to find ever more challenging efficiency savings every year. Exactly. I mean, I think, yeah, austerity is disputed, isn't it, in various ways. But 
it, it, but on the it, staff point, I would say, um, Jessamy, that, you know, we need more doctors and nurses. Um, when I was health secretary, I put through a 25% increase in the number of training places for doctors, nurses and midwives. But um, we've got to have a better long-term way of doing this. And um, it takes seven years to train a doctor, as you know, three years to train a nurse. But by the time you've negotiated with a medical school to offer those places, you know, it's going to take eight or nine years from a minister deciding to train more doctors and them actually arriving in the NHS. I mean, I persuaded Theresa May in the summer of 2016 to increase doctor training places by 25%. There is still not one doctor in the NHS today, additional doctor, as a result of that decision. And I think that what we need to do is to ask someone like the ONS to work with NHS England and publish an annual projection of the number of doctors, nurses, midwives, endoscopists, oncologists, every specialty in the social care sector as well that we're going to need so that we can then hold the government to account to really make sure we're training enough going forward. Because otherwise, I just think we're continually not going to be training enough numbers. Do you think this uplift in, in staff is probably the key way that we could avoid, say, should a pandemic happen again, this kind of cancellation of core services that we've seen over the last year? I wouldn't want to raise expectations because pandemics are so exceptional that, you know, sometimes that kind of last resort thing is going to happen in any healthcare system. But we can't ask NHS staff to have to work as hard as they're having to work in a pandemic on a continual basis. Because, of course, after the pandemic is behind us, there'll be a huge backlog of surgery. Then we often have a winter crisis. And it's not fair to ask people to carry on working this hard as a, a normal part of their job. It's, it's too stressful. It creates too much burnout. And, and that's why the long-term solution must be to increase the capacity of, of the workforce. So do you think there's a question here, I suppose, about the kind of um, resilience built into these systems? Like how, how, can we, how can we improve the resilience of the NHS? Well, I think it is through having a, a better long-term plan for workforce. But I also think, um, going back to my earlier point, I mean, my big passion when I was health secretary was patient safety. And I was very troubled by the high level of avoidable harm and death in all healthcare systems. It's not just an NHS issue, but in the NHS in England, we know that there's at least 150 preventable deaths every week. And we are probably middle of the pack internationally. Um, some people say actually we're one of the better and more safer healthcare systems. The Commonwealth Fund say that. But to me, um, I think the problem with the healthcare debate in this country is that everything has become a debate about money. Um, now, of course, that's one thing that you can hold politicians to account for, and it's easy to measure, but it's ultimately an input measure. And I think we ought to move the debate on not just to how much money we put in, but how can we turn the NHS, this precious crown jewel of our country, into the safest, highest quality healthcare system in the world. And I would like to settle the funding issue once and for all by saying, look, we currently fund our NHS at around the Western European average. But from now on, we're going to fund it at 1% above the Western European average. 
Uh, we'll renew that settlement every five years, but that's where it'll be. And um, we now want the NHS with that resource to deliver the highest quality healthcare in the world. And it's up to you guys to work out how to do that. But I think, you know, Nye Bevan's vision was not just healthcare for all, it was high quality healthcare for all. Um, and that's really now what we need to be focusing on. Uh, moving on to talk a little bit, I guess, about your role as the chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee. You've been taking a lot of evidence from like, crucial actors throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what's next uh, in, in hearing evidence from people? And do you see a kind of role for an official inquiry in the future? Well, I think the Prime Minister said there is going to be an official inquiry. And uh, that, I think, is something that will be set up after the pandemic is behind us. Um, but we want to present our findings before Easter, um, so sooner than that, because we want this year to be a big year of change for the NHS, where we learn some huge lessons. And really, if we think about the vision and imagination of the Attlee government in 1948, when the country was broke after the Second World War, but they still found the imagination to and the courage to set up the NHS uh, can we turn this most challenging year the NHS has ever had into another 1948 moment by fixing the problems in social care, by fixing our long-term workforce problems, by sorting out our focus on quality and safety? And so we'll be doing inquiries during the course of the year looking at just how you do this. We're about to launch one into young people's mental health, uh, of course, being very affected by the pandemic, but again some really exciting changes that we, we can and should be making in our school system to help intervene earlier with mental health problems. We're looking at maternity safety because if we had the same safety rates as Sweden, we'd have a thousand fewer baby deaths every year. And I think there are some really important things we can do there. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, learning disability and autism because we still have 2,000 people locked up in secure units that would be much happier and healthier if they were in the community. So we've got a lot on our plate. Uh, talking as well, because you know it's a, a major passion of yours is social care, and you mentioned it there um, uh, previously when you were talking about, you know, towards the end of your time as, as uh, health secretary. What do you see as the future of social care policy in the UK? Well, I think we've got to really do three things on social care. Uh, first of all, we have got to put it on a sustainable financial footing. There's no two ways about it. It's going to cost more. Um, and uh, we, we probably need to put in an extra £7 billion a year uh, by the last year of the Parliament, which is a significant uplift on the current budget to deal with demographic changes, increasing the national living wage, various things like that. So there is a financial element. But there are two other things that I think are equally important one of them, we've got to deal with the unfairness that we, we cover all the costs that a cancer patient would have, but we don't do that for someone who has dementia. And if you end up having to go into a care home, you, you have this terrible thing where it's not just the person who has dementia's life savings being cleaned out. You might take the view, well, they're going to die anyway. So, you know, that's, it, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate, but the money's got to come from somewhere. But of course, their family are then given this incredible dilemma, you know, do we put someone into a home where they're well looked after um, but lose our life savings for the people who are going to, to live on or, or, or 
do we try and somehow protect our own futures? And we shouldn't be having this disparity. And that's a, a terrible injustice and unfairness. The third thing we need to do is to properly integrate the social care system into the NHS so that for patients it's a seamless transition. They don't get pushed from pillar to post. There's a single budget, a single care plan on an electronic health and care record shared between both systems. Every professional dealing with an individual knows what that care plan is and that's, a, that's another major thing we've got to sort out. Jeremy, if, you're, if you were health minister again now, and um, or health secretary, and you, you had your wish list sort of within the realms of reality, what would be on it to happen now? Well, I think it's about ambition. It's about saying, look, we've just come coming out of the toughest period the NHS has had in its history. It's more than risen to the challenge. Let's use this as a really big moment to make the changes that the British people want, because uh, they are massive supporters of the NHS. So let's let's sort out the social care system, which is as important for the NHS as it is for the social care system. Let's uh, sort out our workforce problems. Let's sort out our our quality and safety issues. This is the moment for imagination and vision. And let's grasp it. I've learned in politics that uh, you do have to be opportunistic. And in a way, this is opportunism, because this is a moment when I think you could see big public support matched with big government support for a real change. Do you, do you see this broader renewal as a kind of general project for the Conservative Party? Well, I think from the Conservative Party, I mean, I'm, you know, sick to death of of being of having our motives questioned on the NHS when we've actually been running the NHS for longer than the Labour Party since it was founded. And uh, indeed, the NHS was was first mooted by a Conservative health minister in 1944 in, the, in a white paper. Um, so it would have been set up by a Conservative government if Churchill had won in 45. But, you know, here's a chance to prove our NHS credentials, if you like, to, to make sure we have this transformative moment of vision and imagination. And do you think this transformative motion is something that will should occupy all departments? You know, a kind of government-wide kind of look at how we can renew the country coming out of this crisis, and of course post-Brexit as well. I think there are lots of things that we 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 need to renew coming out of the pandemic. But certainly, when it comes to health inequalities, that isn't just something for the Department of Health. But yes, I think it could be a moment of great change for our education system. Um, and indeed, we're also going to have some big foreign policy challenges with the rise of China and uh, the future of democracy across the world. Well, Jeremy, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. It's been fantastic to have such a kind of broad-ranging chat and, and, and great to hear about your, your, your thoughts about, about you know, the problems of the last year, but also looking forward to a kind of brighter future. So thank you so much for talking with us. Not at all. Good luck with the series. So... Thank you to Jeremy and thanks to you for listening to this episode of The Lancet Voice. You can subscribe to The Lancet Voice in your usual podcast places and we'll be back in two weeks' time for more discussion about the world of health. Thanks for listening. Listener.